This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Welcome back to the podcast on this lovely afternoon. Well, it's afternoon for me. Uh, I don't know what time you're listening to this. It could be any time, but whatever time it is. Hopefully it's equally lovely. Before we get into the conversation today, um, I haven't done this on any episodes, but I just want to give a few sort of general uh, show notes. First, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and you can find it on SoundCloud as well. Probably the easiest place to go for um, all the links to subscribe, to listen, as well as show notes and other things is IsaacMorehouse.com. That will have all the podcast episodes that also has, I blog there every single day. There's a blog post there every day, a lot of content. Um, some of the books that I've written are also available on isaacmorehouse.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Isaac Morehouse or Facebook, um, facebook.com slash Isaac Morehouse. And in both of those places, I am always happy to take um, questions you have for me. If you want me to cover them on an Ask Isaac episode or uh, suggestions, feedback on the show, you can also email me, isaacmorehouse at gmail.com. Okay, today's conversation, I want to talk about this whole idea of follow your passion or don't follow your passion. And joining me to discuss is my good friend and colleague, TK Coleman. And TK and I have had many, many conversations on these topics. So TK, thanks for uh, for joining the conversation. Always a pleasure, man. So... Um, a funny, you know, this is a funny anecdote. Before this podcast, I decided to just go refresh myself on some of the many articles and takes that I've heard on this whole topic. And so I did a Google search, uh, follow your passion. I did, first I did don't follow your passion. I got a whole bunch of results. Then I did a Google search for follow your passion. And I got basically all the same results. And it there's almost nothing. If you Google search follow your passion, you can find literally no articles that actually tell you to follow your passion. That's the weirdest thing ever. Every single article was why follow your passion is bad advice. Don't follow your passion. Don't believe what everyone tells you. And now I'm starting to wonder who, who is the everyone who is actually making the case, follow your passion. It seems like everybody is saying, Oh, let's be, uh, you know, controversial and say, don't follow your passion. But as far as I can tell, that's all anyone's saying. So how is that controversial? I don't know. Now, TK, you've read a lot of different literature on this. Who are the dominant sort of people or books or articles? What are the dominant arguments? Are there actual people saying, you know, whether it's that phrase or not, you know, follow your passion, only do what you love. Where, where is that camp coming from? And how did I miss it in my Google search? So that, that has been a pretty dominant theme in self-help literature for a very long time. I mean, a lot of people quote follow Joseph passion. Campbell. Yeah, yeah, follow your bliss. You know, follow your bliss. Um, and, you know, or, or Maya Angelou, do what you love and the money will follow. So statements like this have existed for a very long time. And I, I think for the most part, these statements express something that we all intuit, even if we don't know how to philosophically defend it, which is there, there's gotta be some sort of intelligence or wisdom inherent in the things we feel compelled to do and the things that really seem to matter to us. 
And I think all of the people out there who have been saying, follow your passion, they've been speaking to that large audience of people who feel a lot of angst and anxiety, a lot of depression and discouragement around what they do for a living. They do things that they that they hate or tolerate rather than things that they celebrate. And people have been speaking to that audience saying, hey, look, you don't have to be afraid to do the things you really want to do. Don't be afraid of failure. Don't be afraid of not knowing the next step. And to a certain extent, that message is kind of necessary. But what's happened, you know, with any kind of idea, any sort of advice about doing what you love or chasing after what you want, you know what's going to happen when people follow that advice. People are going to experience the nuanced nature of reality. They're going to experience the reality of a world where no matter how good the advice is, you're going to stumble upon anomalies. You're going to have experiences that don't seem to be explicable in terms of that, you know, easy to understand advice. So for instance, one one example of this is several years ago, Oprah Winfrey promoted the book, The Secret. And she had all of these people on the show and they were talking about the creative power of thought, focusing on what you want, visualizing visual, visualizing your ideals. And while there may be some value to that idea, what happened is everyone goes and buy the, buys the book because Oprah talks about it. And then they go home and they think after watching a DVD or reading a book, they're just gonna visualize a beach house or a gold necklace around their neck and then it's going to happen. And then you have this epidemic where tons of people are now heartbroken and depressed and running off to see their therapist because the secret didn't work. And so now there's a need to counter this oversimplified presentation of a good idea by telling people, no, don't do that. Your, your thoughts don't create your reality. Your thoughts don't mean anything. Your passion. And so I, I think a similar thing has happened with follow your passion. So many people have followed their passion and they failed. They've embarrassed themselves. They didn't recover from that failure psychologically. Uh, they didn't tell themselves an empowering story about their seemingly negative experience. And now, now there's the need for people to come along and help those people by saying, hey, look, there's more to this than just doing something because it's exciting. A additionally, there's a large group of people out there who say, hey, I don't have any obvious answers to the question of what is the one thing I've always wanted to do. And I also think there's a growing need to address those people by saying there's more to this follow your passion debate than just do what feels good or find the one thing that turns you on or do what makes you come alive and you're going to make a lot of money and you won't experience any difficulty. Uh, another another um, phrase that has been um, th that is often said from the follow your passion camp is once you do what you love, you'll never work another day in your life. And that is another statement that's existed for a long time. And I think it expresses a truth. There's there's a truth expressed by that statement. Yet at the same time, anyone who has ever done anything they love knows that that is not the whole story. Yeah. They know that you are going to not only work another day in your life, but you're probably going to work harder than you ever have. Well, so wh it, whether what you love is building a business, playing basketball for a living, or raising children, there are aspects to doing what you love that just feel like crap. And statements like that, although the people who utter them usually understand these nuances, the statement itself doesn't capture it. And I think that's where a lot of the don't follow your passion, you know, um, where, where those articles and, and books are coming from. You know, I, I think there's so many 
there's so many sort of, I don't know, dichotomies in here that get conflated or jumbled up. I mean, there's the, there's the process versus outcome conflation. So for example, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Okay. If I love playing basketball and I'm on a team, um, but I hate conditioning, conditioning feels like work, but I'm willing to do it because I love playing the game of basketball so much. And the game is more fun in the midst of it. And, and it's not some end goal. Like the goal, I only love winning the championship. Um, and that's it. And I'm just trying to do that. And I, I everything makes me unhappy until then. It's not that case at all. It's I actually enjoy the process of playing the game. But in order to play the game at a higher level, which is even more enjoyable, there is work to be done. I have to do conditioning, which I may not enjoy. I have to do things. Uh, I choose to do those things knowing that they will be work because I know that they enable me to sort of move into a higher echelon of what you might call a flow state where I'm in the game and I'm just loving the process of doing it. I think that's, that's often missed. So like, what does it mean to work? But I also think the concept of work in general, when people say, you know, follow your passion, do what you love, do what makes you come alive. Everyone automatically assumes that there are two realms in life. One where you earn money to buy food and a house and a car and then one where you do everything else with whatever time you have left over. And most people assume follow your passion, you know, do something you love means you've got to find a way for all the things you enjoy to be the same things that are bringing you money. And that may or may not be the case. That may or may not matter at all. Like, I don't understand why that is viewed because, because I think an even bigger problem than people not working jobs that they enjoy is people not living lives that they enjoy and they're earning their money in their 40 hours a week or whatever. And they've actually got the time and resources to live enjoyable lives, even if they don't like their job in the rest of their time, but they're not because they tell themselves, I can't go try to be a musician unless I'm doing it full time. Or they tell themselves other things. So, so I think even you know, separating that from what your job is or what your means of earning a living is, then it almost becomes more valuable in some ways. Like pursue something you're passionate about. Um, even if you have to have a job that you're not passionate about, it doesn't mean that you can't have like, like actually make good use of your free time. Um, I find that to be really interesting as well. Okay. Now let me ask you this. So I, I shared with you, and this is a pretty popular article, a wall street journal article by Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. And he says, you know, don't follow your passion um, at all. It's that's just stupid advice. Um, just go out there and find something that will be successful uh, and and try a bunch of things and you'll fail a lot of times until you find something that puts you in a position to most succeed. That's the better way to go. Um I want there's sort of a built-in assumption there that like having more money and free time will make everyone happier. And I actually think that's not true for some people. Um, so maybe, maybe, you know, doing something that you don't like all that much, but it makes you a ton of money and you get to, as the example he used, buy a new boat every couple of years. Maybe that doesn't even make you happy. I think that's an open question. There's a lot of assumptions in there about the, the value of money to everyone. But what is your thought in general on this idea that like, or like follow your effort, Cal Newport, or um, go work hard. In other words, let me, let me see if I can clarify, clarify my question. Do you buy into the idea that anything that you do and learn to do well 
you will become passionate about versus trying to find things you're passionate about and then become good at them. Yeah, th- this is all interesting stuff here. I think a lot of it is a matter of um, a matter of semantics. I think the word passion is a lot like the word happiness. It, it gets really confusing because so many people mean different things uh, by by these words. So I, I'm sure this is something you can relate to. You know, I grew up in the church, and a phrase that I heard preachers say a lot growing up is "God doesn't want you to be happy." And I was always horrified by that statement, like, oh, my gosh, like what? God wants me to be unhappy. You know, but people would just say that a lot. That was a very cliche (laughs) thing to say. That was not said in the churches I grew up in. (laughs) 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 It was the opposite. God wants you to be happy. (laughs) Now now I see. Now I understand why you're always joking around laughing and why I'm always so serious. (laughs) Two different gods, man. Um, so, So, yeah, but I would always hear that God doesn't want you to be happy. And. But what they meant was God isn't interested in you experiencing immediate gratification or you always getting what you want, but God is more interested in developing character or he's more interested in you living a meaningful life. And and I find that like if, if you step away from the passion debate, for instance, and you just focus on the happiness debate, like should we pursue happiness? You'll find there are a lot of people out there who are saying you should not pursue happiness. And then you'll have you'll find people out there saying oh, you totally should pursue happiness. And they're both right, but they mean very different things by happiness. If by happiness you mean pursue immediate gratification, always feel positive emotions, never feel down or feel comfort, well, well, no, that, that that's probably an unhealthy thing to do to make happiness some sort of end goal. On the other hand, there are more substantial definitions of happiness, sort of like Victor Frankl's will to meaning or the concept of flow that you referenced earlier. Uh, There are lots of more substantial notions of of happiness. And um, uh, Martin Seligman, the positive psychologist, is is very good at pointing this out. He identifies actually three levels of happiness. So I would say there's a similar thing going on with passion. What do you mean by passion? So let me give you a bad bad analogy. Let's say you have someone who is chasing after a rabbit all right they're following a rabbit and the rabbit is making a lot of twists and turns going down a lot of alleys and streets and the person is sticking with that rabbit and they're following them everywhere it goes and then at some point they're going down a a sort of narrow alley and there's a pile of crap ahead of them and the rabbit runs through the pile of crap now the person who's pursuing the rabbit in order for them to follow the rabbit any further they have to go through that pile of crap And so they've got a decision to make. Do I want to go through that pile of crap and risk getting my shoes dirty and smelly? Or do I just want to kind of, uh, you know, experience the the convenience of not having to endure that and turn around and walk away? Well, if the person decides to go through that crap, then that person can truly be said to follow the rabbit. If the person decides to turn around and not go through that crap, then that person isn't following the rabbit. They're actually following the crap because they're not willing to endure what they would have to endure in order to pursue that rabbit. I use an analogy to capture something very important about the word passion, because I believe that you should follow your passion, but I mean something very specific that I don't think is vulnerable to the criticisms of people who say it's bad advice. I, I like the word passion as you know, um, as it's spelled out in its etymology. It, it means to suffer, it means to endure. 
So to follow your passion, as yeah, I understand what, it, what did Joseph Campbell said, he, he wished he hadn't said, follow your bliss. He wished he had said, follow your blisters. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that. That, that. That's a very good way to capture it. So, you know, th this is a term that's heavily used in Christian theology to, to, to express the willingness to suffer or endure hardship um, on behalf of something you believe, the passion of the Christ, right? Now, interestingly enough, I, I did a lot of studies in monastic spirituality, particularly in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and there's a distinction they make between two approaches to spirituality. One is the aesthetic approach, and the other is the ascetic approach. The aesthetic approach is when you focus on identifying with elements like beauty, or the, the, the ascetic approach is when you identify with discipline and sacrifice. So aesthetic practices are things like, you know, meditating on a flame or meditating on a flower or taking a walk in nature, things that feel good, things that are comfortable, things that make us feel connected with the universe, one with life, while ascetic practices would be things like fasting, things that are very uncomfortable, but that might be good for you in ways that go beyond that comfort. Now, bringing that back to passion, I think when people talk about following your passion, even when they criticize it or when they praise it, they usually focus only on the aesthetic dimension of passion. They say, find what makes you come alive and go do it. But they don't focus on the ascetic dimension of passion, which is you know what you're passionate about, not merely by what makes you come alive, but by what you're willing to endure pain for. Um, so I like to say, as a matter of clarification, if you're following your passion, that means you're following your priorities. You're doing things that you love so much that even when they don't feel good in the moment, you have a reason to keep pursuing them because your passion is more substantial than just immediate gratification. So yeah, the, if I, I'll, I'll go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say this, this is where I think it gets so hard. Um, I, I have long advocated that or said that doing what you love, whether it's a job or a hobby or both in anything is much harder than just doing what you can tolerate. And the reason it's harder is not because the act of doing it itself is necessarily harder. Um, it's because it requires so much self-knowledge first and getting to know your own self, uh, what you really want, your own subjective preferences, your pain tolerance, your risk tolerance, which are not the same for everybody. And then being honest about what you find and not trying to tell yourself, I, you know, I wish I was as risk tolerant as, you know, uh, Richard Branson. And so now I'm going to pretend that I am, I'm going to tell myself that's who I really am. But if you're honest with yourself, maybe you're not, and maybe your risk tolerance is much lower. Um, and so finding that process of self-knowledge and then self-honesty about what you find is so, so key. And I think that has to come before you even meaningfully have this discussion, follow your passion, don't follow your passion. You got to know what kind of person you are. I, I, I can, I can envision a two by two matrix, right? Where you have on one side, people who are you know, doing what they love or following their passion and those who aren't. And on the top, people who are, who would consider themselves happy in life and those who wouldn't. And in each quadrant, people exist, right? There are people who are following their passion and they're happy. They love what they're do, they do and they're glad they did it. Whether sometimes they make a lot of money doing it, sometimes they don't. There are those who are not following their passion and they're happy. I know people like this who do a job that they actually don't like at all 
They chose it because it makes a lot of money and what they care about is free time and financial flexibility and they are happy with that choice. They don't care that their nine to five is not fun for them and they're really, really happy. Then there are people who have pursued their passion and they're not happy because they weren't honest with themselves about the kind of person they were, the things that they valued. So they're doing something, an activity, let's say they're a musician or a professor and they're constantly complaining about how little they're paid and they're bitter and they're mad at those around them that make more money because they want to be the type of person who values doing something meaningful more than money. But in reality, they're not that type of person. And I don't think either one is superior. I just think you need to know what you are and be honest with it. And then finally, those who are not following their passion and they're not happy. Often that's the opposite. People who say, I'm going to go get a law degree because lawyers make a ton of money because all I want is financial success, titles, and respect from my peers. And they do that and they are really unhappy because they figured out they really aren't the type of person who cares as much about that as they do, you know, playing music for a living or something like that. Um, and so I think it's really about that self-honesty, that self-knowledge and self-honesty. It doesn't matter if you're someone who can't be happy unless you're working a job that you love or someone who doesn't really care if you love your work or not as long as you make money and have Neither of those are preferable and there are people that fit all of them, but you need to know which one you are is kind of how I would put it. I don't know. What, what would be your, your response to that, you know, way of breaking it down? You know, I, I love, I love everything you just said there, especially the, the emphasis you placed on self-honesty. It makes me think of the famous question, what would you do if money were no object? This is another example of, um, the kind of thinking that's associated with, with follow your passion. I, I think this question is a good question to some extent. It definitely has good intentions behind it. Uh, but you know, I probably risk, uh, irritating a lot of people by saying, I think there is something about the question that does miss the mark. I think there is something about the question that's potentially dangerous. No, I love, the, we, I, I love the question. You're, well, what's, give me what's wrong with it. Well, well, let me just say, too, I, I think every point has a counterpoint. So I love the question as well. And I've used it to, to understand a lot of things on, about TK, myself. All this but Aristotelian it, golden <laughs> stuff is so boring. So boring. Take a stand. What are you, a follow your passion person or a don't follow your passion person? <laughs> I'm a follow your passion guy. But let me tell you my problem with this question. <laughs> okay. Let me tell you my problem with this question. What would you do if money were no object? So. First of all, for the vast majority of people, money is an object, right? And, and that's why we have to ask the question as a hypothetical. We have to say, if reality were, if your reality were something other than what it actually is, what would you do? So if you were in a situation where scarcity and sacrifice were not involved with the decisions that you make, if there were no opportunity cost involved in the things you pursue, what would you pursue? And as far as that goes, sure, it's it's useful in helping you Think about what makes you feel good or inspired or alive in the abstract. However, I think it's far more helpful to ask, what would you do or what do you actually do in spite of the fact that money is an object? Because it's only what you are willing to do when scarcity and sacrifice are involved that indicate to me what your priorities are. So your answer to the question, what you would do if money were no object, that tells me what your abstract preferences are, but it doesn't tell me what you're willing to pay for. It doesn't tell me what you're willing to sacrifice for. And uh, so, ultimately, so sort of the, it's sort of the opinions are free, right? Like, do you like, you know, foreign, foreign goods or domestically produced goods? Oh, I love domestic goods. But when you actually are shopping and you have to pay more for one, you might. It's, so it's, it's that kind of concept that it's 
the question lets you off the hook too easily and lets you get away with being dishonest with yourself. Or, or, or at, at least it allows you the freedom to think about what you want in a way that isn't associated with the real cost involved. Yeah. And, and that doesn't mean the question doesn't injustice. It just means you're going to need more than that question if you're looking to attain meaningful self-knowledge about what you're truly passionate about. Because the, the question only addresses one very important half of the whole passion equation. And that's the half that involves what feels good to you or what feels inspiring for you to think about. But, but, it, but so it, it reveals to you your preferences, but it doesn't reveal to you your priorities. And ultimately, if you want to be the kind of person who creates the results that matters most to them, then you're going to have to also answer another question, which is, what am I willing to sacrifice for? What am I willing to suffer for? Not just what makes me come alive, but also what makes me willing to endure pain in the process of cultivating what I desire. I want you to defend a position because I know you're always willing to defend or attack any position just just for the heck of it. So whether or not you actually <laughs> believe in this, but that the, you know, sort of don't follow your passion crowd, you often hear something to the effect of just get really good at something, master something, be good at it. And some people, thankfully, will add something that's valued by others, um, get good at it. And then either, you know, you'll learn to love it or you'll make enough money that you'll be free to do things in your free time or something like that. My question to that approach is like, okay, but that really doesn't get us anywhere because there's a million valuable things you could do. So how do you pick which one? Like, what do you master? Do you go master welding? Do you go master programming? Do you go master watercolor? Uh, even if you don't love it, do you, right? Like, I, I think that that question, it, it, it's almost, it's seen as this kind of like puritanical, like, like righteousness through suffering. Just do something that's hard and become good at it. And that's how you'll really succeed. Let me hit you with the reality of the world, kid. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> you know, don't, don't chase, you know, rainbows and, and butterflies, roll up your sleeves and get good at something hard. But how does that even get you – how does that help you pick what to get good at? That, that doesn't narrow anything down. So for me, it's almost just sort of this like, you know, I, I get it. It's it's like a reaction against people, you know, living in their parents' basement and saying like, you know, I'm holding out for a management position at a video game company. Um, meanwhile, like not doing anything at all because you're – you know, I want to do what I love. But but I think that go get good at something that's hard. I don't, I don't know that that gets us any farther. What would you say? How would you sort of defend that approach? So I, I think I would appeal to Cal Newport here, author of So Good They Can't Ignore You, because he actually does have some pretty interesting things to say about the follow your passion debate. And I think he gets misunderstood quite a bit. So when he says don't follow your passion, for him, he doesn't put the emphasis on passion. He puts the emphasis on the word follow. So to understand Newport, you would have to say, don't follow your passion. And, and Newport, Newport believes that a life of passion or a passion-filled career is something that you can manufacture over time. In, in other words, you, you're not necessarily going to find out what you're passionate about just by thinking, you know, just by, by doing a meditation exercise or taking a workshop or doing some kind of test that says, Isaac Morehouse, 
here's the thing that makes you come alive. Now go find a way to make so money. It's kind of it's kind of this Joseph Campbell thing that like there is a a journey, a path that's the that that fits you. Or I don't know if it's you know just one, but but you can't find it by thinking about it. You got to go start to start to explore, start to test, and get that feedback from the real world. Right, and and Newport acknowledges the fact that you do have interest. But we should probably make the distinction between between interest and passion, if for no other reason than that when people think about passion, they feel something very differently than when they think about interest. Interest is a much more conservative term. So you definitely have interest, and your personal interest should be a discriminating factor. So if you're going to learn some skills and you absolutely hate coding, but you think you could tolerate welding, or you think welding is something that you know you might enjoy a little more than coding – then interests like that should definitely play a role. But it is not necessarily the case that you're going to feel passionate at any given moment in time about the options that are before you independently of your decision to experiment with, with those options. So use your interest as a way to make decisions. But if you combine that process with the process of taking on creative challenges, developing useful skills, over time, you actually can become more passionate about things or give birth to passions that you didn't really know about. And in fact, in the article that you referenced, that's exactly what he talked about. He, um, he, he didn't start off feeling passionate about writing comics. He felt passionate about creating financial independence, and he felt interested, interested in it, but not in a way that that was like, this is what I'm born to do. But as a result of doing something that he was interested in, in a manner that was consistent with his priorities, in an experimental fashion, he began to develop skills, have experiences, and see results that caused him to get more passionate, passionate over time. So passion isn't always found, um, or passion isn't always followed. Sometimes it's manufactured or discovered as a result of engaging reality, getting feedback, experimenting, exploring, and so forth. So, so I, I kind of have this... I like uh, sort of both arguments, follow your passion, don't follow your passion. I don't find either of them particularly problematic or anything, but I, but I feel like both of them are focusing on the wrong thing, focusing on passion or what you love or bliss or your calling or what makes you happy. I think focusing on that, either saying do it or don't do it is really, really stressful and kind of misleading. Um, there, there are things that you don't yet know exist that may be the things that make you the most happy and trying to find what you don't even know exists is like a, a task that's so overwhelming. So I think it's much more valuable instead of trying to do what you love or not trying to do what you love, I would say just don't do things you don't enjoy. Don't do things that you don't like, that you know don't resonate with you. And now the whole world is open to you. You don't have to find the one thing you love the most or the thing that makes you most alive. Just try everything that you don't hate. And, you know, it, obviously there's different levels of enjoyment and there's different levels of convenience and opportunity. So it's not, you can, you can literally try everything because that's just infinite number of options, but it's easier to identify things that you know you don't like. And maybe this is the, the Misesian economist in me that, I actually don't think humans seek happiness first and foremost. 
maybe when they achieve some level of comfort, you know, they're at the top of, you know, the hierarchy of needs and they're achieving self-actualization or, or reaching for it. I think what motivates humans to act is the removal of discomfort. And so seeking to avoid pain is, I think, stronger, clearer, pain is more easy to identify and define than seeking to obtain pleasure. And as long as you're moving away from pain and dissatisfaction, you're moving in the right direction. And I think that's a really, really powerful paradigm and way to frame it up. And, and, and then the inevitable question comes, okay, if you're just, you know, don't do anything you don't like. People say, well, isn't that this sort of hedonistic thing? Eat, drink, you know, eat and drink for tomorrow we die, live in the moment. And I say, uh, no, unless you're a total idiot, right? <laughs> because the, the point is to avoid pain, not only in this moment, if you know you're going to die tomorrow, then yes, eat and drink today and just like avoid any pain or any discomfort whatsoever. But we're smarter than that. Run the probability in your head. What's the probability that I'm going to live tomorrow and the next day and 20 more years? And what I do today, even though it avoids pain for today, it might actually cause me more pain in the long term. And the point is to sort of maximize pain avoidance and have the most sort of quality time over a lifetime. So if I can do nothing today, I never get out of bed today. I don't brush my teeth. I don't eat. I don't exercise. I don't work. I've experienced no pain today. Um, but now I'm going to experience three times more tomorrow, right? So you take into account the probability of how much time you're going to have and how much future pain it will cause you. And you, you take that into account, um, to sort of balance the, the long-term and short-term demands. But I think avoiding things you dislike is a far more profitable mode of pursuing, you know, life than trying to find the one thing or the few things that you will love. Cause it's just too hard to find those grasping in the dark. So let, let me play angel's advocate here by, by challenging that. Why, why, why are you calling it angel's advocate? Because I don't think it helps the devil when you challenge people to think critically about what they believe. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've, I've never quite understood that. Um, so, okay. So anyway, um, what would you say to someone who makes the distinction between avoiding that which is unwanted and pursuing that which is wanted? Uh, eliminating, managing, and minimizing what you don't like and maximizing and focusing on what you do like. And, and it sounds like your advice here is saying re regarding the former, minimize or eliminate the things you don't like, but shouldn't there be something in there about focusing on what you do like? Because there are a lot of people who are very good at avoiding pain and avoiding discomfort, but they're not necessarily any more focused on what they want. Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you know it, if you identify it, and it doesn't have to be one thing for all time, but if in the process of saying, okay, I've, you know, worked in finance and I really hated it and was unhappy every day, I think I'm going to try to get out of this. I want to avoid that. That's not, it doesn't feel good. I want to move away from it. I think that is a much clearer path forward than I'm unhappy here. How do I find the one thing that will make me happy? Now, if in the process of avoiding things you don't like, okay, I've tried X, Y, and Z. None of them were really great. I, I didn't like them. I, I hate it every day. It's not for me. I'm moving into the next thing. If all of a sudden you come upon something, oh my gosh, podcasting. I love this. This is really fun. I'm in the zone. I think you should always kind of check yourself and say, look, I don't want to pretend this is going to last forever. I may get bored with it eventually. I may find that it's not fun, but for now, 
I know that doing this makes me happy. Now I want to gear everything towards doing more of this, as much of this as I can, and as little of the things in my life that I dislike. Um, and then if it gets to a point where I no longer enjoy podcasting, then I want to try to move on to something else. And that may be something known. I may know that there's another thing that I love more or that I really enjoy, or it may just be, I don't know, I got to try some new stuff. Um, as long as I'm moving away from things that actively hamper my, my happiness, um, I'm moving in the right direction. But I think it's fine if you, if you have something that you know really brings you fulfillment or brings you the money that you want to bring you fulfillment. Again, it's about being honest about what your priorities and values are. Maybe you value money um, above sort of being happy every minute of the day, and that's totally fine. But if you find those things, go after them. I don't think you, you shouldn't pursue what you love, but I think it's easier and probably should take premacy to avoid things that you know uh, cause you pain or unhappiness. All right. So let me attempt to, uh, give, let me attempt to capture that in two statements. So do we they, can try do, to have do a they precise formulation. You usually always make them rhyme somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can rhyme, but I, I'm, I'm infatuated with principles, even though I know that can make so many people like upset. You can't have a principle for everything, but I love <laughs> abstract formulations. Um, so, so maybe we can, we can say there, there, we'll, we'll call these the two passion postulates. <laughs> I knew it. We could say, uh, number one, always seek to minimize the experience of what you hate or tolerate unless you perceive it to be a necessary condition for creating a result that matters to you. Number two, in the absence of any logically or morally compelling reasons to do otherwise, always do what feels good. I think I could... Um... I think I could agree to, uh, agree to both of those. I like, I like those. Um, I have to think more about it. Um, well, okay. So let me, let me make this, this slight transition to the subject of goals, which was another thing that in that Scott Adams article, he talks about, he, he has a really funny line. He says, goals are for losers. <laughs> He's, he, he basically says, literally, if you have a goal, you're basically always failing at it until you achieve it. And then after you achieve it, then you feel this sense of emptiness, like what next? And he sort of says goals are overrated. Instead, you should just have systems, sort of systems that help you, um, you know, always be sort of looking for the next, the next best thing. And I thought about that, you know, sort of, sort of okay, let me see if I can apply this, to, put it in my own, in, you know, in my own life. I probably have never really like followed clearly identifiable goals. I've never been totally like, okay, here are my three goals. I must do these. You know, I want to get into this kind of school or get this kind of job, make this salary and go get those. I always probably have been kind of by default a process guy, but my process has just been, I don't want to do anything that I don't enjoy doing. Um, but, I, but at the same time, I do have sort of bigger picture goals and the more successful people I've talked to, the more I've found all of them like almost giving you this sort of like pst, wink, wink, like, Hey, there's a secret. You want to know what it is? You know, make big, crazy goals that you think you would never be able to achieve and like read them to yourself or write them down, repeat them every day. And that will do something that will activate your subconscious. It will awaken your subconscious and feed it something. And it will start to make you more aware of opportunities that will bring you closer to those goals. And it's, and sort of using goals, not so much as a, like, you know, new year's resolution style, I'm going to lose 20 pounds or whatever. Um, and then always feeling guilty that you're not doing it, but using them more in like a big lofty sense, like, you know, I want to 
whatever, you know, sell my company in, in for, for $10 million or I want to have a beach house and sort of that, that listing of that, that internalizing that goal in some way activates your subconscious to, to kind of help you get better at what you do. And I, and I think there's something to that. Um, but I want to hear your take on sort of Scott Adams thing that goals are, are for losers or the, the opposite, you know, what, what do you, what is your thought about goals? Yeah. You know, first of all, for me, I mean, this invokes something we talk about a lot, which is the principle of, of charitable interpretation. And I think in the arena of personal development, professional development, anytime advice is given about life and career, I think we need to invoke principle of charitable interpretation more than almost any other arena. Just because, just <laughs> the because number it's of so- times, TK, where I've posted some little short, like, you know, if you're a young person, you should consider, you know, whatever hard work is more valuable than talent or, or just something like that. Some general piece of advice, the number of people who it's like, if they disagree or I'm not talking to them, that's fine. But who feel the need to go on and be like, this is dangerous, terrible advice be- because it doesn't apply to everyone in every situation. <laughs> like as if, oh. as if you're only allowed to say something, if it applies to everyone always, you know? Oh, seriously, man. And, and really there's a game I like to play where it's, give me a piece of advice. And basically, no matter how uncontroversial or obviously true the piece of advice is, I'll give you an example really easily and really quickly of how I can be offended by that and of how you're ignoring something and it's really dangerous and irresponsible for you to ignore it. You know, um, so I mean, even if you take something like, you know, Einstein said imagination is more important than knowledge. Well, you know, it, it takes a lot more than just sitting around and visualizing the things you want you know, in order to get things done. And not only that, there are certain things that you simply cannot do unless you actually have mastery over a specific subject. So, it, it, you know, imagination isn't more important than knowledge. It, you know, it's, it's irresponsible to even say that. And this is why we have a lot of people who don't get stuff done and they never change their lives because they're just sitting around dreaming up a better life without going out there getting the knowledge they need to change their lives. My response is always like, well, that advice isn't for you then. Just walk away. (laughs) If it doesn't make you excited, you know, if it doesn't do something for you, then it's not for you. Well, you know, one way I like to think about it is this, and and this is what I think part of the, the spirit of the principle of charitable interpretation is all about. Like, okay, ask myself for a second. Let's use a bit of imagination. If Einstein was here today, and I said that to him, would his mind be blown? Would he respond to me by saying, wow, TK, you are so deep. I never thought of that. You are so right. Like, you can't just create the life you want by sitting on a couch and dreaming up a better situation. Wow, you are the deepest dude I ever met, TK. That's probably not gonna be his response. He probably would concede that point without much difficulty. he probably, you know, like what would be a way of interpreting his words that would not lead to a contradiction? Mm. What, would he, what would be a way of interpreting his words that would not make him look stupid and irresponsible? And then once I find that, ask myself, does the context support that interpretation? And when I do that, I come up with something like this. Einstein probably meant when he said imagination is more important than knowledge, that the ability to conceive of new possibilities is so important that we should not allow it to be unnecessarily restrained by our attachment to what is already familiar. That seems to make a lot of sense. And that seems to be supported by the context. 
you know? Um, and I don't have to even assume that he's an idiot or assume that I'm the greatest philosopher of all time. But but the easiest thing in the world to do is to pick apart anything that anyone says, you know, if someone says, you know, work hard and you can make things happen, I can pick that apart with ease. But I, I try to understand things. I, I, I try to put more energy in asking myself, what can I learn from this? And, and how can I become smarter as a result of interacting with this idea rather than how can I tear this apart or build my reputation by being the guy to, you know, tear this, this statement down. So anyway, bringing that spirit to the article you're referencing and the thing that he said about systems and goals, looking at the context of that statement, it seems to me that he was addressing a tendency that people have to set ambitious goals and never get anything done because they're too focused on the goal rather than on the action steps they can take in the here and now to achieve those goals. And he's also focusing on people who set ambitious goals and they never get to experience any kind of pleasure or fulfillment because it's all or nothing. I only get to be happy when I achieve my 10-year goal of living in a beach house and every moment before that sucks. And it sounds to me like he's saying that's a pretty unhealthy, unhappy way to live life. And if you're not doing anything to move towards those goals, that's pretty unproductive. So instead of becoming obsessed with what you want to have or who you want to be in five or 10 years, yeah, think about it enough to, to be precise about what you want, but spend the bulk of your time asking yourself, what are some things I can do right here, right now that will not only allow me to enjoy the journey, but that will also increase the probability over time that I actually will achieve that goal. So what I would say is I agree with him if, if we mean the following, relative to your need to get things done and enjoy the journey, focus more on systems rather than goals. And relative to your need to know what you want and feel motivated to do it, then focus more on the goal itself rather than the process or system you're using to get there. You know, That's what I would say. Yeah, and I, I think um, as long as goals are viewed as kind of hard and fast ends to, to reach, um, I think they're really problematic, not, not even so much because every minute you don't reach them, you feel like a loser more because if you do reach them, um, they're always too small. I think, I think goals, you know, you, you can have a, I mean, once you get there, like when I was young, I didn't really, you know, okay, what are some goals or they're more like vague, you know, ideas of like a kind of life I want to live. And it was so small. I had such a limited picture of what I was capable of and what the world was like and what opportunities were out there. Um, grew up in just sort of a hardworking, you know, Midwestern community. And I kind of like achieved it all really young. And then was just, was just sort of like, okay, all I ever, all I ever sort of thought I was going to do was just like have a decent job and a, and a house and family and sort of, you know, have enough time to enjoy myself. And I, I've done that and I realize I'm capable of a lot more. And I think goals in that sense is like tangible places to get are always a little bit too small. Whereas goals, if you use the word to mean more like imagination, the ability to think bigger and to imagine things that are crazy, like, okay, even if it's something you, whether or not you'll ever achieve it, like, okay, my goal is to walk on Mars, right? If if I have some way, you know, not just like hoping somebody makes the technology, but I'm, I'm, let's say a part of a, you know, technological community that's trying to make this happen or 
some really bold thing. Whether or not you achieve it, I think pushing yourself to imagine more is really, really valuable. Um, and I think that's congruent if you see goals as, as sort of imagination rather than like fixed points in time, fixed destinations that are sort of small, like lose 20 pounds or whatever. I think that actually works well with this idea of systems that Scott Adams talked about because both of them are always looking towards what's the next thing I can do that's better than what I'm currently doing. And it gives you that open-ended excitement of like, I don't even know what I'm going to be doing in 10 or 20 years. All I know is that it's going to be better than what I'm doing now because I'm always looking for some next big thing uh, or next, remember it's a big thing or not, some next opportunity to step into. Um, so I think that that way of looking at systems is like always have a plan to be sort of growing and progressing because the, the journey itself is enjoyable, um, is, is correct as opposed to sort of, you know, pick the salary you want to make and go after it. But I do think goals as in like imagination stretching and techniques for sort of helping your subconscious be your ally. Um, I think there's something, I think there's something to that. Okay. I'm going to ask you a, a question here. I'm going to put you on the defensive. You're going to defend the follow your passion position, right? You already said that you, you were willing to say that you favor follow your passion and you really, that's a simplification. You gave us a lot of explanation for how you kind of like, uh, both approaches. Um, but let's say that somebody hears, okay, TK says, follow your passion is great. Um, yeah, but TK, what if my passion is playing video games all day? I would say use your imagination. This is, you know, it's so funny because if you really play video games all day, then learn something from those video games you're playing. And one of the things you can learn something from those video games is my gosh, po pos possibilities are, are endless. One of the common objections people make to following your passion is they, they always do stuff like this. They point out something like, yeah, well, I like basketball and I don't have the ability to make it to the NBA. And it's like, okay, but that's, that's equating your passion with one particular way in which that passion can be expressed. So just because you love video games doesn't mean the only way you can get paid for your love of video games is by sitting around in your apartment and playing and expecting checks to come in the mail. But there are other ways to get paid for loving video games. I mean, someone has to make video games. Someone has to market video games. Someone has to test video games. In fact, someone writes magazines about video games and reviews them uh, and, and debates about them. I mean, so there's so many different facets of the video game industry. And there are so many different ways that people can make money by being involved in video game or video game related activities um, that one doesn't have to merely limit him or herself to getting checks in the mail for sitting alone in their apartment to play video games. So as long as you don't limit your passion to the one idea you currently have about how you can get paid to do it, then you become open to the possibility that there are a lot of different ways you can go about it. Similar to basketball. I mean, some, that's something that I'm passionate about, but I don't have to be in the NBA. I can write about it. I can talk about it. I can analyze it. You can, you know, there, there are lots of people that can't play basketball that are coaches, that are physical therapists. I have a really close friend who actually played college ball and that was his passion. And he's a, he's a, a physical therapist now and he loves what he does and he works with athletes and he helps them do the things they need to do in order to in order to optimally perform. And he loves it. So there's more to following your passion than just 
one particular activity. Don't limit it to that. But more reasons for why you should follow your passion? Well, because there's more to life than just making money. And even if you can't make money doing something that you love, you should fight for your right to make room to do things that fire you up and make you feel alive. You only got one life to live. Why make why make money the the sole justification for the things that you do? Um, you know, to, 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 no, go ahead. To, to say I'm only going to live a lifestyle where I do things that I get paid to do. I mean, my gosh. The chances of me ever making money for playing the piano are probably zero, but I'm learning to play the piano right now because it feels awesome. It's exciting. It, it brings meaning to my life, and I love it. Um, I'm probably not going to get paid for that, but how meaningless would my life be if I never uh, did things that I have no chance of getting paid to do? And in case anyone takes something like that lightly, I, I should make it clear that I am bogged down by all kinds of external obligations and spending time learning to play the piano, it actually is a fight. I have to work really hard and make major sacrifices just to have that time. But it's worth it. It's worth it because of what it does for me uh, psychologically. And, and I think it's an energy that I do bring to the things I get paid for, although I, I probably couldn't you know, articulate exactly what that is. You know, I, th I think sometimes the, this whole debate is all stuck in kind of a medieval mindset, right? We, where we kind of forget the wealth and technology that's available to us today. Um, there was a time in which if you loved music and wanted to be a musician, you had to be a professional musician because nobody else could afford to just play music that much because you had to be, you know, whatever it was, working the fields or whatnot. If you wanted to delve into, you know, astronomy and learn about the stars, you had to be, um, you know, either a, you had to be an intellectual, a professional intellectual of some kind, you know, get into academia or uh, uh, the church. If you wanted to pursue something you had to basically make it your profession. You were, you know, the the blacksmith in town if you love metallurgy or whatever. Now, the world is so different and it's happening so rapidly that I think we still have this mindset that like if I want to be true to myself and not be a sellout and pursue music, I have to be a professional musician. And that's not true at all. In fact, in my own life, so I love music. I love playing and singing. Uh, I love playing with it with a band or just something that you can't, you know, sort of substitute for that. I love writing music and I've always had this desire to record some songs that I've written. And when I first started writing songs, when I was a very early teenager at that time. This was not even that long ago. Really, the only way to do that was to have high quality equipment to pay to rent out a studio to record over many, many hours, pay somebody to help edit it. Um, and burn it, you know, press it onto CDs, physical CDs that cost a decent bit of money. And if you wanted to share with anybody, you had to have a bunch of them made. Um, and to me, it was like, well, that's only worth it if I can make money off of them that will offset the cost. And if I have all that time to practice, because if I'm going to go into the studio, I want it to be like perfect and get it right. And basically, I have to be a professional musician if I ever want to hear my stuff recorded. Within like 10 years, and I didn't, it's, it's not, you know, that I like my burning desire was to just be a professional musician and anything else was selling short. I wouldn't even say that I love to play and perform. And I just wanted to like have some songs I written recorded and have that ability. Technology solved it. 
it made it so that you didn't have to be a professional musician to have recordings. Now you have, I mean, my, my iPhone, if I just want to have an acoustic guitar and me singing, the, the quality is actually pretty good. You have equipment, you have GarageBand, you have SoundCloud, you can upload it to, you don't need, you know, CDs, you can share it with whomever you want to. I now can get to the end that I wanted without becoming a professional at it. And I think that's possible in so many realms. I mean, there was once upon a time where if I heard a radio host and I was like, that sounds like a fun job, I want to do it. I would have had to make my whole life focused on getting into the radio business and hopefully becoming one of the few people that's a host of a show. Um, that's a pretty high bar. I'd have to know. I didn't. I wouldn't have to just not like it. I'd have to like love it. It wouldn't be enough to say, I think I want to do that because I'm talking about a lifetime commitment. I'd have to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I wanted to do that giving up everything else. Now I don't have to, I can just launch a podcast right now. And if I get bored with it, I can stop doing it tomorrow. And I think people sort of are almost unaware of the age in which we live sometimes. And they're stuck in this mindset of to, to not be a sellout and to, to, you know, to not give up on your dreams. You have to go like get a full-time job doing X, like you said, an NBA player. No, we're at a time where we have more wealth and opportunity than ever. There's a basketball court on every corner. You can just, you can play basketball an hour every single day and be just like a normal guy who's an accountant. Um, that wasn't possible once upon a time. So in a way you can live your passion more than ever, even if you're not a professional at it. And I think that's something a lot of people miss. Hey man, look at what you're doing right now. You're basically hosting your own talk show and you're doing it because you love it and you don't care if you get famous for this or, you know, you make any money for this. You're doing it because you like to have interesting conversations with people that you think are interesting. And this is something that you told me you were going to do a while ago and you were like, I'm busy as heck. I've got a ton of stuff to do, but I'm going to figure out a way to do make time for this because it, it's just so fun. It feels so good to do. So I, I think you're a living example of this. And I, I'll make one last point about passion that I, I think is often missed. and and if anyone is just tuning this, in, this is good. This is good. This is a this is this will wrap us up. Take take us home with your last point, TK. Yeah, you know. So uh, again, there are a lot of different things we've talked about. You know, th that are important to understand when 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 encouraging people to follow their passion. But one very important thing I would like to emphasize is that passion, following your passion, is a tool for self actualization, or rather, it can be used as such a tool. And a lot of the advice against following your passion comes from a conviction of feeling that the best thing we can do for people is to protect them from the experience of failure and pain. Mm. Well, not only are we not going to be able to do that because people are going to experience failure and pain anyway, but I think the best thing we can do for people is to help facilitate experiences that lead to self-discovery and self-actualization. I think the main reason you should follow your passion isn't because I think you will succeed. It isn't because I think the probabilities are high that you will succeed. I agree with all the critics who say that for every person who starts a successful business, there are hundreds who fail. I agree. For every person that goes out to Hollywood with starry eyes with the goal of being an actor, uh, there are hundreds who fail. I agree. I know most of them. Most of them are my friends. But you know what? <laughs> We, we, we focus on a person who op opened up a yoga studio because it was their dream and then they fell and they did it and it didn't work out. And we stop the story there without asking ourselves, okay, 
what did that person learn from that experience? Not just in the sense yeah, yeah. of what they, did they learn they about didn't balance fail. sheets. Their, their company failed, but they didn't fail. Their life didn't fail, you know? Oh, didn't, man, didn't man you know, I, some of the most interesting no, – no, I mean, to be honest, the most interesting people, period, that I have met, the people that have made me come alive, the people that have fascinating things to say and good stories to tell, they are not people who live these linear lives where they did everything right where they made smart decisions 100% of the time and they never fail. They're people who did things like fell in love with some guy or girl they shouldn't have fallen in love with. They, they chased somebody across the United States even though everybody told them it was the dumbest thing to do. They auditioned for some crazy Broadway play they had no business auditioning for. They tried to start a business even though it was the dumbest idea in the world. And it's not that they just learned what a balance sheet was by doing those kinds of things but they discovered things about themselves, important things. And one of the most important things they discover is that failure is not as frightening in reality as it is in theory. Um, and, and not only is failure not as frightening in reality as it is in theory, but it's often edifying in ways that we cannot even imagine. And usually the thing, the great things that we do go on to achieve, they're sparked by the particular ways in which failure has has nourished us and enhanced us and empowered us. Hmm. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave us with a little like quick phrase, and then you're gonna leave us with a little quick catchphrase. All right, all right. <laughs> Mine, I'll go first. Mine is life is too short to do stuff that you hate. If you're not, if you're really unhappy and feeling pain and discomfort in what you're doing, quit. Quit doing it. It's too short to do things that you hate. Make as much room as possible to do things that you love, whether you get paid for them or not. And if you want to get paid for them, approach that process with a lot of imagination and a lot of a determination to endure suffering. I love it. TK, thank you so much for joining me. This is a great conversation. Um, and I think an important one. So my guest again has been TK Coleman. You can find him at tkcoleman.com and he also blogs at the Praxis blog. Thanks so much for joining me. You there? I'm here, man. Oh, okay. Here, I, thought, I thought you'd say something after I said thanks so much for joining me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. That was, I thought that was to your, your audience. <laughs> <laughs> man, you just messed up the whole interview, dude. <laughs>